that uh, the courage will be more outward, the call to rebuild. In this amazingly complex time with great, great gospel opportunity, isn't it the ebbs and flows and the highs and lows of this season is crazy, isn't it? We've got this big tin uh, baptism font that we, I think we kind of copied you guys. We kind of thought, well, the Texans, let's copy the Texans, you know? And uh, I mean, h- half of California is moving here anyway, so. Um, and uh, and um, man, we just haven't, just every Sunday, we've just had to fill it again. We're just baptizing week after week after week. It's just amazing. Just incredible. And, uh, and yet, boy, there's some, some hits we've taken too. All of you. And so what is it to remain courageous on mission, with our heads lifted, but not in denial of the very, very real wounds that we carry? There's this uh, series that I don't watch at all. My wife watches it. <laughs> it's called Call the Midwife. Any of you seen it? It's kind of an old, uh, kind of set in the early 1900s, these midwives that are, are working, and uh, there's, there's this amazing little quote where the one lady says, the world is full of fragile people. When we try to mend them, it can break us. I think that's the reality of what we are walking through. Everyone's walking with wounds through the last 18 months, but... Leaders in the church of God are trying to mend people too. <laughs> so there's, there's a wound that comes from that. And so I want to take you to a very well-worn psalm. Bibi, I love your building, but this uh, pulpit is not very big. <laughs> I want to take up an offering for your pulpit. I like to lean on a pulpit, you know. I'm old school. I don't do iPads. Turn with me to Psalm 42. How many of you were saved uh, before the 80s? Hands up. Okay. Before the 80s. Hands up. So as we read the psalm, you will think immediately of a song that was sung ad nauseum, Uh, but let's go for it. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands a steadfast love and at night his song is with me, 
a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. And so I just can't help thinking of that as the deer pants for the water old song. And uh, since I was taught to hunt, whenever I see it, I just like, I find my, my left eye closes and my, my hands just want to come up. And I just find myself going, will someone shoot the flipping deer? I, I actually got into trouble with Craig and Becky because they're on this great property with all sorts of deer. And I was just like, let's go hunting. And he was like, no, 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 I will lose my marriage if we shoot a deer. But this, this song was written and, and the psalm is so popular because it resonates so deeply within us, doesn't it? that all of us have seasons where we pant for streams of living water. And, and I heard that Sean spoke last night about the outpouring of the Spirit, and this really echoes that theme. But I want to say that this psalm holds a couple of tensions that are so important for us as we pant for streams of living water. This, this psalm uh, was written by the sons of Korah, who were paid temple musicians in David's tabernacle. So they, they were paid to pant. They were, they were paid to be in God's presence and minister God's presence. And what we see here is that one of these sons of Korah are feeling the tension between his ministerial responsibility and his own spiritual reality. And it's a tension that we all feel at some time. And then there's also a tension that we see is that he's panting for a stream of living water, but he's doing something interesting in verse 4. He's pouring out his soul. And I, I, I want to ask, what, what does that tell us about the soul of a leader? Why is he longing to be filled and yet having to pour something out? What's, what's going on here? And I want to suggest that this is a soul that is not just depleted. It's not just empty. It's a soul that is saturated. It's a soul that's thirsty for the presence of God, for streams of clear living water, but is so waterlogged that he has to pour something out in order to be filled again. And I've found this over probably six years or so, such a helpful, it's not a recipe, there ain't no recipe to soul health, but it's a, it's a really helpful template for us to process our souls so that they may be filled again with the streams of living water. Some of us are suffering from depletion, like literal just exhaustion because of the season of life, family life, ministry life. We, we, we have those moments. But, but many of us 
actually suffer more from saturation. You, you know the feeling. You sit listening to some absolutely tragic story of someone in your flock, and you just go, I should be feeling more deeply about this, but I just kind of don't. And so it's not just the problem of not feeling, but, but you're actually feeling guilty for not feeling. Or otherwise, like, amazing stuff. You get a new building or you're just baptizing people and they're giving their testimony and you go, I should be feeling more delighted. What's going on? Or otherwise, you, you sit in a sermon and you, you hear it and you just go, this is amazing, but I just feel kind of numb. You're in worship and, and, and you turn around and people are weeping and you're just like, I, I, I feel like I'm going through the motions. What the heck is going on? There's a, there's a movie by Terence Malick called To the Wonder that deals beautifully with this sense of the saturated soul. And it's this priest who's ministering to his flock. And while he's ministering, he's having this dialogue with God that you hear. So he's saying all the right things, praying for the dying and ministering sacraments, etc. And all the while, he's having this conversation with God that we hear that other people don't. And he's just saying, God, I'm supposed to be a model of faith. But, but I, I feel so far from you. God, I'm supposed to help these people, but I'm doubting your existence. God, what am I? Just a brilliant glimpse into the tension we feel often between ministerial responsibility and our own soul, spiritual reality. So I want us to journey through the psalm that gives us such a helpful progressive remedy if we've got a saturated soul. And first what we see here is that he pours out his soul. Verse four, my tears have been my food day and night. This guy's soul is affecting his body. It's affecting his appetite. He's living on a diet of tears. Some of us, when our soul is downcast, we can't eat. And some of us, when our soul is downcast, can't stop eating. But whichever way, our soul affects our body, doesn't it? When we have a downcast soul, our body starts to play out, and that's what's happening. Don't you love the Psalms? It, it's so practical. It gives such a range of description about emotions. And he says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude leading the procession to the house of God. And so this son of Korah, he, he used to be first to church, you know? He used to be first in the prayer meeting. He would, he, he would be leading the procession, but now he's kind of dragging his feet to church. He's phoning it in. He's got a salary, so I'd better be there. But I'd much rather be watching the Cowboys. The Kent State Golden Flashes. Yeah. My son. My son played against your... Texas A&M guys and nearly upset them. Nearly. Nearly. Baby, <laughs> get a better pulpit. My gosh. <laughs> and so, and so he's, he, he is remembering. He's remembering what that is. And one of the real signs of unhealth 
is unhealthy remembering, where you get caught in nostalgia. I remember how I used to lead the throng to the house of God. I remember how I would just witness to all my friends. I remember when it was easy to give. I remember when my house was just a railway station of just people coming. And I remember what's happened to me now. And as you grow older, it's so easy to get glory days, isn't it? The glory days. is that U2 song, I believe, in rock and roll in the golden age of pop. You glorify the past when the future dries up. There's a, there's a glorifying of the past. And, and he's bringing this problem in his soul to God. Oh, God, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of easier, simpler days. How many times in the last 18 months have you just gone, I'm just longing for simpler times? Yeah. And so there's a good remembering. You can remember the faithfulness of God. That's a good remembering, but there's a bad remembering. And he's recognizing that. You know, Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann uh, is so helpful with the Psalms, he, he, he breaks down the Psalms into three kinds of category. The first, he says, is the Psalm of orientation, where everything is right in the world, everything seems right, and they songs of praise, bless the Lord of my soul, all that is within me, you know, Psalms of orientation, it's great. And then there are Psalms, he says, of disorientation, in which we feel we've sunk into the pit, he says, where nothing makes sense. Our soul is in turmoil. And, and about a third of the Psalms are Psalms of disorientation. And that should be mildly encouraging for you and I, because we're not alone with the people of faith over centuries when we feel disorientated, when we feel like we're longing for better days. And then he says there are Psalms of reorientation. And many of these Psalms are like that, where in the midst of turmoil, we reorientate ourselves around the truth of who God is, and we start to come right way up. It's no surprise that he says Psalm 42 is a psalm of disorientation, but it actually begins to resolve at some point. But first, he, he actually pours out his soul. And the danger of not pouring out our soul is not just nostalgia. The, the danger of not pouring out our soul is that we become functional with God. God becomes our genie in a bottle, and we start to ask him for stuff, and when he answers that, we like him, and when he doesn't, we sulk. We become incredibly contractual. And I want to say, as, as leaders, we are not immune to becoming very functional with God, and the way to do it, to stop, is to pour out our soul. The Bible calls it lament, and lament is the remedy for grumpiness, and I want to I want to encourage you that God is secure enough for you to lament. Your wife might not be. Your flock might not be. Your husband might not be. And I think because we don't know how to lament in moments of disorientation, we unload on other people that are actually not strong enough to cope with it. I'm not saying you don't share, but we've got to go first to our God who's big and loving and strong and secure enough to take our lament. Pour out your soul. The third danger of not pouring out your soul is you start to fake it. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm blessed, brother. I'm the head and not the tail, brother. 
Oh, but looks like you've got like a little tear. Oh, no, but it's a tear of blessing, brother. You know, trust me. And, and, and we just start to, to fake it. Pete Schizero, many of you have, have read his books on emotionally healthy spirituality, he says this, emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Pouring out our soul is not just for Californians. Some of you are saying, of course, you're talking about the emotions, you know. You're from California. Of course, you know, you guys are all in touch with your feminine side. I want to say, pouring out your soul is not just for poets. It's not just for Democrats. Pouring out your soul is for plumbers and teachers and full-time moms and sales executives and students. Pouring out your soul is what it is to be healthy before God. And let's stop pretending that we can be spiritually mature without being emotionally healthy. The Psalms are our permission to, and I don't know how you pour out your soul. Some of you might, you know, silent meditative prayer. Others journal. Others need to get out on the ocean or into the woods and shout at the top of your lungs. Whatever it is, ring out. It's like, think about this. Think about your soul like a waterlogged sponge that's been sat in your bath with all like muck in it. You've got to wring that thing out. Think of your soul like a kid's painting. You know, when they just take all the colors, red, yellow, green, purple, and after a while it just gets all gray. That's what a saturated soul is like. You've got to find a way to empty that stuff so that the living water can flow. You've got to be disciplined. You've got to find some safe people, mature people, with which to process your soul. You've got to prioritize that. Secondly, he listens to his soul. Verse 5a, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? He asks it twice, verse 5 and verse 11. The curious and, and beautiful thing about this psalm is that he, he interviews himself. He investigates, he interrogates himself. He's attentive to himself. Why? What's going on? And, and the description of his soul as, as downcast is, is significant. Because it, it describes someone who's emotionally heavy. The, the, the word downcast is the Hebrew word shachat, which encompasses a, a general feeling of gloominess, but extends all the way to complete emotional collapse and utter despair. I want to say, those of you who struggle with clinical anxiety or depression, you are in great company with the people of God. And some of you that just are a little bit eeyore, a little bit gloomy, tending to see the glass half empty, etc., this also reaches to you, to us all. And the sources of his downcast soul, he's, he's asking, what, what are the sources here? I mean, there's spiritual numbness, as we said, but there's also wounds from his enemy, he says. My soul is downcast 
because of a deadly wound from my adversary. So some of us might have wounds from our childhood. Some of us might have a chemical imbalance. Some of us have a family or a relational tension, but almost all of us suffer from wounds from an adversary. I mean, all of us want to share our pastoral war stories, don't we? There was this one dark day <laughs> last year when in the same day, I think well, otherwise in two days, one guy who's a good friend of mine, we do Christmas together, he's a cop. And he came and he said, we're leaving the church because you spoke about racism. And so you're clearly against cops. And I said to him, can I be against racism and for cops? I don't think you can. I'm out of here. And it was a wound. It was a wound. And then almost either the same day or the next day, someone said, I'm leaving the church because when you spoke against racism, you didn't support BLM enough. I'm just going, can I just put you and the cop together, please, and get out of Dodge? You know what I'm saying? It's like... It's weird. What is going on? Why are you taking hits from both sides? What is going on? And, and, and all of us have, have faced that in some ways. People that we've done Christmas with, people who we've married, people whose you know, families we've buried just out of there because of flipping masks or vaccines or race or politics or whatever. And you're just going, what is going on? And I'm sure all of us have been clumsy at times and said things or not said things, etc. But these wounds seem to be unjust. And so why? Why, oh my soul, are you so downcast? You know, there, there's some church traditions that have warned against this kind of investigation of the soul because we don't want to be navel-gazing. Or we, have, we, we perhaps maybe come from cultures where it's like, don't be like all emotional be tough. But let's remember that these sons of Korah were taking their cue from King David, who was a hunter, and who was a warrior, and who was a great king, but had this amazing bandwidth of emotions that he could talk about. And they were just taking their cue from their boss. And this was David who had a heart after God's own heart. And I want to say, man, if you've been taught that to be spiritual is not to talk about emotions. What do you do with the description of David? A heart most like God's heart. The problem is when we deny what's going on in our hearts, we either become valley people or volcano people. We're just waiting to burst, or otherwise we retreat like Elijah into isolation. Neither are God's heart. And we have this thing of we, we associate Christian maturity with this kind of stiff upper lip stoicism, especially those of us who come from more British, Scottish, Swedish, whatever. It's like, don't talk about that. One of our examples, I believe, should be good old Fred Rogers, who said, feelings are both mentionable and manageable. Feelings are mentionable and manageable. A real wake-up call for me was a pastor called Darren Patrick. Man's man. 
chaplain of the St. Louis Cardinals, who tragically died about two years ago from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. So successful in so many ways. And I went and listened to his last podcast before his death. And in it he said this, we often get sin and wounds confused. Sins are rebellious places in our hearts that need repenting. Wounds are tender places in our hearts that need healing. You cannot repent of wounds and you cannot go to therapy for sins. We've gotta be a gospel preaching people who call people to repentance, the relief of repentance, of owning, of saying, my bad. We've gotta teach people to stop pleading innocent and plead guilty and plead for mercy because that's the gospel. Let's not, let's hold the line on that. So many churches are not holding the line on that. They're just patting people on the back, saying, you're great. No, 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 we preach the gospel. We preach repentance. There's an amazing relief that comes when people repent. But you know, if all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And very often we're just like, oh, you, you downcast, you must be in sin. You downcast, you must be in sin. This person didn't seem to be in sin. It seemed that they were sinned against. I had a wound from an adversary. And that wound can't be repented of. You might be acting out in a way that, but there's a, the thing beneath the thing that needs healing, right? So you might have been wounded by your father and now you're acting out in performance, in legalism, in rejection, in insecurity, and you're repenting of those things, you're repenting of those things, but the wound hasn't been dealt with because there's a thing beneath the thing that actually needs healing. And, and it's good to have a grid for understanding our souls, for questioning our souls. I mean, whether you're into strength finders or ENFJ or Enneagram or all of these things are helpful. But I want to say, man, when we're asking, why are you so downcast within me, oh my soul? There's nothing better than the mirror of community for our souls. I have a spiritual director, and I've gone to a therap therapist a few times. And I think in our, in our culture, we need to give people permission without feeling guilty about that, not to become dependent on it. But this guy, who's a Christian, he said, you know, I've seen people come to incredible freedom in my office one-on-one. -on -one. But he says, I watch them. The only way they really walk in freedom is when they do it in community. The best way to find out your soul is to give your friend, your family, safe, mature people, a hunting license for your soul. Say, what do you see? What do you see? Can you hold the mirror of community up to my soul? I'm giving you permission to speak. And that's hard, but that's healing. And then thirdly, this is probably my favorite part, he, he doesn't just question his soul, he speaks to his soul. Why are you so downcast on my soul? Put your hope in God. Why are you so, can you, can you see the rhythm? He's questioning his soul, verse 11. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He doesn't just question himself, he talks to himself. 
Talking to yourself is not a sign of madness. It's a sign of emotional health. I love that. He asks the question, and then he starts to, question, to, to direct his soul. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, Spiritual Depression, says, most of the unhappiness in your life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Our culture preaches the gospel of to thine own self be true. Be true to yourself. The Bible is much more nuanced. The Bible says be honest with yourself, but be true to God. Preach the gospel to your soul. Remind your soul how depraved you are and yet how loved you are. Martin Luther says we've got to beat justification into our thick skulls every day. Why? Because we're always trying to prove ourselves. But the gospel actually sets us free. One of my favorite movies that Chariots of Fire, you know Chariots of Fire? And there's Eric Liddell, he's running. God has made me fast, I feel his pleasure when I run. God has made me slow. I feel his pleasure when I sit. But anyway, he, <laughs> I plod, I plod. My only genius is I plod. But, but he's running against this guy. He's a Christian man. He's, his, his identity is secure. And there's this other guy he's running against. Before the race, the guy turns to me and he says, I've got 10 seconds to justify my whole existence. You go, oh my gosh, so many of us are like that. We're justifying our whole existence by the numbers the giving, the sermon, the comments. And actually, we've got to preach the gospel to ourselves. We've got to speak. You are accepted in the beloved. The truest thing about you, Ellen, is not what you have done, but what has been done for you. I've got to remind myself of that time and time again. We have the gospel. The world only has their souls to be true to. We have a much higher and deeper truth to be true to. And this is not faking it until you make it. This is just acknowledging that my feelings are fickle. They really are. I mean, honestly, if you led your marriage, led your church, led your family by your feelings, it would be a train wreck. But there's something higher and deeper. You don't deny your feelings, but actually... In Christ, you say, I am the boss of my feelings. That's what, we, that's what we tell our kids. You are the boss of your feelings. Feelings are mentionable, but they're also manageable. One of my favorite books on this is C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, which is an allegory about these demons who are trying to trap, uh, trap a Christian. Thin little book. If you want a little glimpse into spiritual warfare, Read that. Not unaware of the, the enemy's strategy. And in it, they're trying to hide from this new Christian the connection between his soul and his body. And he says this, at the very least, they, Christians, can be persuaded that the bodily position makes no difference to their prayers. For they constantly forget what you must always remember, that they are animals and whatever their bodies do affect their souls. One of the ways that you preach to your soul, put your hope in God, is that you say, 
whether I'm feeling hopeful or not, I'm going to do something with my body as a posture that speaks to my soul. And the problem is our culture is like, no, 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 you've got to keep it real, dude. If you're feeling downcast, you act downcast. Otherwise, you're a hypocrite. No, that's not true. You say, I admit I'm feeling downcast, but now I'm going to do something. So if I'm feeling rebellious, the best thing I can do is kneel because it says something to my soul. If I'm feeling hopeless, the best thing I can do is raise my hands because it, it speaks to my soul. If I'm feeling stingy, the best thing I can do is give. Are you faking it? No, you're just saying, I am answering to a higher truth than my soul. Not denying how I'm feeling, but feelings now fall into rank now. When our minds run wild in anxiety, in panic, in bitterness, in lust, We have the Word of God. We have the Spirit of God. We can speak to them. We can speak to them. Speak to your souls. And finally, refresh your soul. Verse 7 to 8, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands a steadfast love, and at night, His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Don't you love that he starts out panting for a, for a stream and he ends up getting a waterfall. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. But he's done some soul work in between. He's wrung out that waterlogged sponge He's wiped off that color, messed up picture of his soul. And so there's room for the streams of living water. He's asked the hard questions. He's done the hard work of speaking to his soul. And now he is deep calling to deep in the roar of God's waterfall. He is reorientating himself around God's steadfast love. He's in turmoil. Nothing has changed in his life, but now he's reorientated his soul around God's steadfast love. You know, I love that Isaiah 53 description of how Jesus, our Messiah, would atone for us. That the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. That he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. But in the midst of that, it says, he poured out his soul unto death. And surely he carried our griefs and was stricken for our anxieties. The beauty of the atonement, the gospel, is that we have a savior who was crushed for our transgressions. But we also have a shepherd of our souls who carried our griefs and was stricken for our anxieties. He poured out his soul, not just a sponge, he poured out his soul unto death. 
So it's painful for us to pour out our souls, but he poured it out unto death. And the divine exchange is that the atonement gives us forgiveness of sins, but also gives us healing of wounds. Beautiful thing. 1 Peter 2, 23, echoes Isaiah 53. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. For all of us, Peter says, like sheep were going astray. But now we have returned to the shepherd of our souls. What a, what a gospel. We have a savior from our sins, but we also have a shepherd of our souls. And the shepherd of our souls promises to lead us to streams of living water. We know that in Psalm 23. But the shepherd of our souls doesn't just lead us to streams of living water. Remember in John 7, he stood up at the Feast of Tabernacles and in a loud voice he proclaimed, if anyone believes in me, it will be like springs of living water welling up to eternal life. And he was talking about the Holy Spirit. We have this precious gift of the Holy Spirit that the psalmists, the sons of Korah, they didn't have full access to that. It said it hadn't yet been given because Christ hadn't yet ascended. We have it indwelling. What a savior. So Father, we thank you. We bring our souls to you. And Jesus, I, as I walked into this room this morning, I felt a real sense of courage and faith, but I also felt real pain. And I just ask in Jesus' name that you would encourage your people to pour out their souls. Into your hands we commit our souls. And we come with our wounds to the wounded one. And we ask, Spirit of God, that you would heal. We ask that you would give us healthy rhythms and healthy ways. Lord, we, we want to be in this for the long haul. We know that we're going to take hits, but we want to do it in a way that's healthy. And thank you that you give us a way. So please pour out your spirit like a waterfall as we pour out our souls before you. I wonder if you, if you really sense uh, the presence of God strongly on you and, and you, you just have a sense that he is, he is doing a healing work in you. Won't you just stand? I'm not going to call you to the front, but just won't you just stand? I'd like to pray for you in particular. If you feel that, you, you feel maybe raw and exposed, but you sense the presence of God on you. And you're saying, no, this, this is a time to, to listen to your soul and speak to it and I want to I wanna heal it. So come, Lord. Heal your people, Lord. I pray for the mirror of community in their life. They wouldn't hide from that. 
pray for the hard work of honesty. But I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you always give us much more than we've bargained for. And so as we, as these people pant after streams, won't you give them a waterfall of refreshing? Jesus, thank you that you not only save, you satisfy so deeply. Thank you, Jesus. So come, Spirit of God. Come, Spirit of God. Fall afresh. Spring up. Spring up, O oh well. We ask, spring up. We ask for joy. We ask for joy in the midst of sorrow. We ask for courage, Lord, in the midst of fear. Thank you, Lord.